Hey everybody, this is Jimmy. Welcome back to the Jimmy Tingle Show. We are so excited today to welcome Jim Sullivan, writer for the Boston Globe, great arts editor, music critic, and also so helped the comedy community over the last 30 years. So it's a real pleasure and an honor to be able to speak to Jim and talk to you folks about his new book. Now check this out. The new book is Backstage and Beyond, 45 Years of Classic Rock, Chats and Rants. Jim Sullivan spent 26 years writing for the Boston Globe and two decades more writing for national publications. He's interviewed and reviewed countless musicians, many of them multiple times. The first volume of his music writing anthology focused on artists who came to prominence in the 1950s and 1960s. 21 of them, that's right, 21 of them are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I just got to say, I love the intimate conversations with, with these Hall of Fame rock stars from backstage or after a show or before a show or over dinner or over the phone. Because unlike most rock critics or most critics, they don't get to know the people intimately. And Jim has maintained relations with a lot of these folks over the years. So the, the articles, that he, the, each chapter of the book is these intimate conversations with people at that time in their career. He might be talking to Warren Zevon from the mid-80s and then, you know, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis from the, the 90s. I mean, it, it's pretty wild. So you get a real window into rock and rollers and the, uh, and the lifestyle they lived and the challenges that they have. And it's, it's a great read. So, Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for doing it. And congratulations on the book. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the congratulations. Well, Jim, I want to know, how do you break the ice with Jerry Lee Lewis, Joan Baez, people you never met before, Neil Young? How do you break the ice with these folks? Well, it varies, obviously, depending upon who the person is. But I think the key thing is, well, for one, do your research. Uh, know what you're talking about, who you're talking to, and where you want the conversation to go. And then, very importantly, try to figure out what their wavelength is and what works best in terms of in the engagement. Uh, humor often works. Uh, pretty much everybody has a sense of humor or says they do. There's no particular <laughs> one thing that I've done, but I do find that I'm pretty comfortable with people at various levels of, if you, of stardom, if you will. I'm not terribly intimidated by it. Um, thus, there's not a lot of hemming and hawing and, um, you know, kind of you know what uh, Chris Farley did on that Paul McCartney interview on Saturday Night Live, the fifth thing about where he just goes, um, everything is so great. Um, here I, am, I can't believe I'm talking to you, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, which if I talked to Paul McCartney, that could happen, actually. But uh, no, I mean, I, th I think part of it is just letting them know or hoping that they grasp that you're a professional, too. You know what their work's mm -hmm. about. It's not a fly-by-night thing. They're going to get questions that are going to be good, probing. Um, you, you know, some will be right on track for what they're trying to promote, of course, uh, concert, album, whatever it might be. Uh, and, but others will go further afield, uh, as it did, say, with Bowie or um, Lou Reed or many of them, actually, or Jerry Lee Lewis, right. obviously. Um, so it's uh, it, it's <laughs> – it's something I, I guess I've learned pretty, to do pretty well over the years. I'm fortunate that's one of the skill sets I guess I have. Well, it's really great because you really pull out of these folks a lot of the questions that they hadn't been asked before. Yeah, I can tell by some of their reactions and how they take a little time. Well, geez, no one ever asked me that before. So it's a real great attribute of the book. 
The other thing I love being a Bostonian is that you're talking about all these venues that all of us have been to many, many times. And folks, if you're listening from Boston and you are a fan of the Boston music scene, which I hope you are, or the national or international music scene, we're talking Tina Turner, David Bowie, uh, Roy Orbison, I mean, all these folks, then this book is just a, a real gem. But I love hearing about the paradise. I love hearing about the great woods and uh, the places that you that you interview these people, the channel. And I'm thinking of all the, every time I hear these clubs, I go, geez, I opened for Warren Zevon at the Paradise. <laughs> yeah, I opened for Patti LaBelle at Great Woods, you know, yeah. so I'm, it's bringing me back too. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to go back to what you, where you were starting about uh, questions that maybe they hadn't been asked before. Probably yeah. the best example in this book is chapter one with Jerry Lee Lewis, where, uh, I was riding in a limousine with him from an airport, uh, the Club Casino in New Hampshire, Hampton Beach, to the airport where his small plane was going to take off and go back down south. And it was right after Rolling Stone uh, had written a story, a few months after the story, um, that strongly suggested he had something to do with one of the death of one of his wives. And uh, I knew that had to be part of the conversation and uh, not something you tend to ask in interviews in my world anyway, certainly, right. but it, it had to be there at some point. And I drove up with some friends and I said, when Jerry Lee said, I'll do the interview, but let's go to the airport in the limo. So, uh, okay, sure. So I told my friends, I said, follow that limo. And if that limo stops, <laughs> you stop. Okay. Because I may be getting out and I don't know in what shape I'll be getting out. <laughs> but uh, we got there, and I, you know, I said, "So I got to bring up the Rolling Stone story." Jerry Lee, killer, his nickname. <laughs> Did you killer? I probably wasn't that flip, <laughs> but uh, and he was in the, the frame of mind to take it as a serious question and one that needed to be addressed, and he understood it needed to be addressed, and he explained himself uh, about how he. He said it could look that way. I understand how people see that it might have been that way. Uh, she happened to be found uh, in her bed with her hands like this in the uh, the after-death position in a casket, by the way. Um, and he explained how she mistook the methadone that he had in his cabinet for aspirin and took too much of it. And, uh, and a few other things that it just, it didn't really add up. Now, do I know anything definitive one way or the other? I do not. He said he did not kill her or have anything to do with her death. Uh, I think the reader can read between the lines and maybe make up his or her own decision on that. And I'll just leave it there. Right. I think it was very wise to have the car following his yes. limo. Yes, I mean, if, if he can be accused of killing his wife, he could be accused of killing you. Yeah, there. <laughs> What's one more? I know. Um, well, how many wives did he have, Jim? I think there were six. Uh, if okay. I'm not mistaken, I think. I, actually, uh, Jimmy, this is just kind of funny asking about whether you killed somebody. I did it one other time. Uh, and I mentioned this. This is actually the intro to the book. Sonny Barger, the Hell's Angel, uh, Altamont, yes. responsible. Yep. He was doing a book tour. He had a memoir. We were having uh, dinner at uh, Paparazzi, I think it was. And uh, um, I'd had, a, I guess, a couple of drinks, liquid courage enough to say this. And yeah. so there were two things I asked. One, I said, if I were to go kick over your motorcycle outside, what would happen to me? 
And he said, <laughs> he, he had voice, he had cancer, throat cancer. He said, you would get hurt. <laughs> I said, I said oh, oh yeah okay that, that was good and the second question was again I, I almost can't believe I asked this I said so I, I read the book you didn't in the book you don't say you killed anybody did you kill anybody and he just fixes me with this glare and says there's no statute of limitations on murder <laughs> and that ended that question right right well Jim tell me about uh, where the where does Boston fit into the rock and roll scene? You know, the national level, the international level, because as we were talking, all these people came through town. That's how you met them all. And many of them, uh, they obviously played these small clubs initially. I think I told you off off camera that um, I know I told you that my wife used to work at the Rat, yeah, my sure. wife Catherine. Sure. And, you know, when she was working there, uh, the police came through. This is before they're famous. The police, U2, um, you know, many other bands that since became, you know, superstars. The same with the Harvard Square and the folk clubs yep. at uh, Club 47 with Dylan and Joan Baez and That's these true. folks. So, but how does Boston fit into the national or international scene? Well, I think one of the things uh, that was important is important to Boston, uh, especially considering uh, bands from England, say, is that Boston is often the first stop for them before they get to the big city of New York. Okay. And it's not a warm-up city or a trio city by any means, but it is a city where it makes logical sense to play first. So we got a lot of these bands on the way up as they were basically cutting their teeth in America. And also, Boston had WBCN uh, doing what it did. Uh, it was a big rock station, no longer in existence. Uh, but they played a lot of these bands, and it got them exposure and uh, interest, built interest here in Boston. And BCN also had a national reputation. So other program directors would listen to what BCN was doing, pick up on the cues from that. And the fame or the potential for fame or success would spread out spread out from Boston to other cities. So I think Boston played a very pivotal role in that regard. And, um, you know, it was pretty much, I mean, I, we had the rap, New York had CBGBs, uh, sort of right. companion clubs in a way. If, if a band played one, they played the other. And uh, the other thing about Boston, uh, as Spinal Tap uh, didn't quite get right, it is a pretty big college town. And, uh, Therefore, you've got this built-in uh, audience, if you will, and this has been forever, of people who are young, are looking to have fun, uh, want to be out in the clubs. And some of them have enough disposable money to do that. And therefore, so this is sort of constant turnover in the clubs of young people coming to Boston, discovering a great scene, going out and uh, supporting the music. Right. And w tell us about who would you say – is among the most influential that have the homegrown talent who weren't just coming from England or someplace else, but from here. I know you talked to Aerosmith yeah. and Joe Perry. Who would you say are among those folks that well, are top notch? Yeah, in the in the first book, uh, yeah, Aerosmith, uh, Jay Giles uh, are in there. Um, in the second book, coming out October 19th, uh, we've got the Pixies who came here from Northampton but kind of broke out of Boston. Uh, we have Mission of Burma, very much uh, a Boston mm -hmm. band uh, that, that got national and international attention. Um, there, there's a chapter on Burma. Um, I would say 
Well, and, and duh, the, the cars, <laughs> obviously. Right. Uh, the biggest man to break out of the, you know, if you will, the punk new wave era uh, from right. Boston. And uh, there's a chapter in book two about them as well. So we, we have seen, I mean, I, I've been asked this question many times over the years to rate the Boston scene and to also say, well, it never had the hip cachet that you know, Minneapolis had at one point or Athens, Georgia had maybe even Cleveland or Akron at, at, at some points. Um, mm-hmm. But I have said and, and maintained throughout many years, it often was up at, you know, if you're going to grade it, it was often up at the A level, A minus level, and never went below like a B plus level. There were always mm-hmm. pretty great bands here. And you look back at some of the old flyers for advertisements at the channel or the rat, wherever, there'll be like four or five, maybe six nights a week where you go, God, I, I want to be there, or maybe you were there, or maybe I was there. Um, there was just so much available all the time. You really had to make choices about, can I go out tonight? Do I have it within me <laughs> to do another night out? Yeah, I'm sure you remember Night Stage. I do. Yeah, I actually opened up for um, uh, uh, say Gil Scott Heron. Gil Scott Heron. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that was pretty wild. That was a lot of fun. And uh, that was the first time I ever did an hour was opening up for Gil Scott Heron because he was late. I'm, so I'm supposed to do 15 minutes. Oh my and the God. owner the owner comes up to me. I'm on stage. You know, this is like, I don't know, 83, 84 or something. The owner comes up on stage and he goes, Jimmy, Jimmy, stretch, stretch, keep going. <laughs> oh, God. I guess he missed the vote. He missed the boat from missed the ferry from the vineyard him and the band and you know how that is and they were coming from the hot tin roof which is another venue you talk about yeah and i think that's where you um met jerry lee lewis is that, that right that was the last time i saw jerry lee yeah that okay. was that was the final sort of goodbye if you will from uh, our relationship um i, I was just going to say about gil scott heron there was also a, a drug problem that may have uh, impacted his ability to show up on time too yeah, yeah, and that's one of the tragic uh, through lines of some of these folks, not all, but some of them. Certainly, uh, Warren Zevon, you elaborate on that a lot in that chapter. I was really intrigued by that chapter. Was uh, Again, I was attracted to the people that I kind of met myself yeah. and, and uh, you know, had an encounter with or opened up for, which I did a couple of times. Do you remember Lupo's down in Providence? Yes, yeah. Yeah, another great club, Jim. What would you say the where where would you say the places are now that are the that are happening in terms of music? Um, I mean, is the scene uh, what it was in terms of venues, or it has it diminished like many other things in well, town? Well, I mean, new clubs come and go. We know that the yeah. paradise has existed forever, continues to, right. and will be the site of my launch party uh, on uh, October 30th right. again. Uh, but the MGM Music Hall uh, in Fenway, House of Blues, Roadrunner, right. um, and clubs go down. Great Scott went down. The Rat, of course, went down quite some time ago. Spit went down. Axis went down. Avalon went down. Um, so it's, it's a constant, you know, uh, shifting scene, if you will. Uh, right. And, you know, it... Uh, Change is the only constant, right? You know, you know. Right, I, want, right. I, want, I want to ask you something, Jimmy. You're talking about uh, you as a comic opening up for these uh, rock artists. How did that go over in general? I mean, I know that was sort of common <laughs> back in the day, but I mean, you've got a crowd paying to see a rocker, and all of a sudden there's a comic they may or may not know. Uh, how, was it a heckling situation, or were uh, did people like it? 
Jim, let me just say this. <laughs> Warren's Eve one went great because it was at the Paradise and it's intimate. And there's, what does it hold? I don't know, 400, at 500? Time, no, it it's not 550 like, or something. Yeah. 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 It wasn't 10,000 people. No. Okay. So you could, you know, and it, he was on at like eight. So I'd go on before that or maybe right at eight or something. So that one went really well. And actually, my wife and her brother were in the audience that night before we had ever met, before Kath and I had ever met. So that one went well. But I did Patty LaBelle at Great Woods. Okay. <laughs> and that, let me. So I get out there and they put me up there as people are coming in, okay? <laughs> and there's like 8,000 people there. Tonight we have Patti LaBelle. Ah, everybody's excited. But first, we have comedian, local comedian, Jimmy Tingle. <laughs> so they bring me out and I'm up there doing it. You know, it's 120 degrees. I'm sweating. I'm like a boxer in the ring. I'm trying to keep them, right? And all of a sudden I hear everybody start going... <laughs> I think they're clapping. Get off. Get off. Get off. I was going to say they weren't clapping because they liked you. They weren't <laughs> clapping for me. And the next day, and I had never been reviewed in the Boston Globe before, and this was not your review. No, no. This was, this was, this was Betsy Sherman. I remember it because in the, re, re, the review said, the night was a tremendous success. Uh, Miss LaBelle was brilliant as usual. I'm paraphrasing, despite the fact that hardworking local comedian Jimmy Tingle went over like the Hindenburg. <laughs> of course, it goes right into the act. The Hindenburg. <laughs> OK, the Hindenburg was a blimp that exploded in 1936. Uh, Eighty five people died. OK, maybe I'm not a comic genius, but an aerial disaster. <laughs> so opening up for a rock band could be very, very tough. Yes. Sometimes they went great, but sometimes not. Barry Crimmins opened up for uh, what's his well, name? Billy Bragg. Uh, Billy Bragg. Yes, Billy Bragg. Billy, yes, they toured together. Yeah. They toured together. Now, that's different. If you're touring with somebody, that's different. They're on the marquee. Yeah. They're in the posters. They're in the avatar. But if you're just getting thrown up there to kill, we got to kill 20 minutes. Get Tingle up there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's, a, that's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a but it was a lot of fun, Jim. And in your book, you talk about all these behind the scene experiences that uh, people have and the musicians have and that they're what their life is like, what they're trying to do. Like uh, Tina Turner. I love that interview with Tina Turner talking about how she was not really doing what she wanted to do. She really wasn't anywhere. She had been doing gigs just for the money to pay the bills. This is after splitting up with Ike. Then she met a manager and how one manager could yeah. completely turn her life around. Yeah. Wouldn't I just tell everybody about that? Yeah, uh, it was, that was a great talk. It was arranged by the record company. It was a dinner with some record company people and I was the, the journalist invited to sit next to her and, and talk about her, her life and career. And, you know, she was very candid in not just promoting a new record or a tour, but kind of musing about whether she wanted to continue doing what she did. Uh, she wanted to act, actually. She wanted to, she's yeah. one of the most charismatic, sexiest singers ever. And she wanted to step away from it. She'd done it a long time and it was time yeah. to maybe try to do something else. So that was part of the conversation. Um, you know, as well as, well, what was not part of the conversation was her time with Ike. And that was me respecting her in the sense that the story had been told, the book had been written. I didn't want to spend time during, you know, a limited amount of interview time 
dragging Ike into it and forcing her to either dismiss him or say, yeah, he did some good things or whatever it was she was going to have to say. So we kind of kept Ike out of it, which I think was a a good call. And the other thing I remember from that too, that uh, she dressed down. I forget exactly what it was. It's in the book, but I mean, it was not the Tina Turner glam that you see on stage. And the other thing that was kind of sweet in a way was as beautiful as she was, uh, she started talking to me about a skin condition that she had and her yeah. face, you know, was breaking out here and there and, you know, do, trying to do this and do that. And, you know, I'm sympathetic, but I'm also thinking, my God, this beautiful woman is telling me about her problems looking good. <laughs> you know? And this is for publication, you know, it's not, not just right. a private co- talk. So, right. I, I mean, it's very humanizing, I guess, in a way. I mean, she has problems we all have, you know. Well, she was great. And what I loved about that was a lot of this is luck. A lot of who makes it in music is is so competitive and there's so many people. A lot of it is, do you, do you hook up with the right people early on? Do you meet the right manager? Do you have an agent that believes in you? Do you have a record company that's behind you? And what I've just found so amazing about that story and, and uplifting really was she found a manager who just loved her, loved her, understood the business, took her, took her under his wing. He's from Australia, I believe. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that made all the difference. And then he just did the business. She did the songs and he made her a superstar. And and keep keep in mind, she was considered old at that time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was sort of, you know, record companies didn't really want her. Uh, She'd had her, she had her moment in the sun. Okay. Thanks. Goodbye. And so it took a lot to get her to where she went again right and she went bigger than just about anybody she, she did. but you said she was considered old i think she was 42 at the time yes yeah, so, yeah something like that yeah i mean when you're in your 40s i mean come on we're not athletes here you can you can do music i mean the stones are touring at 80 that's right, right? <laughs> so, that's so that is one thing that's changed and probably because people you know the whole country their audience is also 80, right. you know, right. right? And so the, the everybody's evolved, but they didn't see that when um, back in the day. Yeah. But that was just a very revealing, a very revealing uh, part of the book that I loved. I want to let people know my wife, Catherine, and I went to his first book signing, but he has another one coming up, a, a launch party for volume two, Backstage and Beyond, 45 Years of Modern Rock, Chats and Rants at the Paradise, October 30th from 6 to 9. It is free and open to the public. So that is October 30th. Mark your calendars, free and open to the public. You can get a book and you can uh, obviously do a photo with Jim and see some of the stars that come by to rub elbows with Jim and support him. Also, on uh, November 7th, he'll be at the Burren. He'll be there with Courtney Swain, and I'll take it she'll be she'll be doing a set. Yeah, it's a, uh, the Earful series has two writers and two musicians, and we alternate. I know I'm going to start the night. Uh, I'm not sure Ted Leo, I believe, uh, and then Mark, and then Courtney. I think is the way it's going to go. Great, great. There'll be a reading, a signing, and, and sales as that as well. And then on November 13th, they'll be at the City Winery, which will be a reading, signs, and sales, wine pairing. Uh, that's uh, that. There is an admission for that. That's $15 admission for pairing and $35 for pairing and copy of Volume 2. So for $35, you get some wine and you get a copy of Volume 2 
and $5 off the list. Now, Jim, the other thing I want to ask you about, the Brookline Library is November 16th, and that's at 7 o'clock, and that's free and open to the public. So you got Brookline Library November 16th. You got the City Winery on November 13th. You got the Barron on November 7th, and you got the Paradise Rock Club on Commonwealth Ave on October 30th. All of these, they're all free except for the uh, City Winery. But where do people get tickets for these, Jim? Let's see, for the ticketed events, they would be on the, the website of the uh, venue itself, City Winery. Okay. Um, you know, so you get tickets at the books. City Winery for the November 13th. Right. But the other ones are all free and open to the public, right? Uh, Earful is not. Earful is ticketed. So okay. you, you would need to, it's Earful, E-A-R-F-U-L-L.com. Right. And you can get tickets there. And that's at the Burren. That is at the Burren. So you could probably get it off the Burren's website yes. as well, yeah, right? right, right. Great. Well, it's an awesome book, Jim. Congratulations. And let me just ask you, um, what was the motivation to write? Were you just like, you know what, I've been doing this for, what did you say, 40 years? Yeah, 45 plus, yeah. 45 yeah. years. Yeah. Did you say, you know, I want to document what I've been doing? And because they, they're not just reprints of the articles. No. They're all... There's some of there's some insights that appeared in the articles, but they're about the conversations and the notes that you took all those years. Yeah, it, it, I put myself into the book stories more than I normally would have in a newspaper article or magazine story. Uh, but the impetus to do it, well, I credit my wife Rosa for uh, uh, over the years saying you've got some great stories. You know, this yeah. would make a good book. And then also we met with who, my publisher, Ira Robbins of Trouser Press Books and his wife, Christina, um, last summer. And, you know, he planted that too. He said, we could do a book with you. You've got good stories. And so between Rosa and um, Ira, and then the occasional encouragement from people on Facebook where I would post some snippets of stories, it was sort right. of like, uh, you know, I think I've got something here. I set the time aside to do it and just burrowed in and uh, wrote you know, at a feverish pace. Well, you're a great writer. And even for a great writer, how long did it take? <sighs> About four months. Four months to do volume one? And two, both, actually. I just got wow. on a roll. Uh, yeah. know, I was doing a, a chapter a day for a while there. And wow. yeah, it just, uh, it was an interesting zone. I mean, you must find that too with comedy sometimes, just when you hit that sort of like, when you're writing, it's like, I'm on a roll now. I'm not going to stop. And right. to be honest, I mean, I wrote more than Ira wanted uh, initially um, <laughs> because <laughs> and that's why we decided to put it into two books because he said, right. you don't want it. This is going to be a doorstop. We don't want a doorstop. Let's break it right. up. So we did. And uh, but the thing was, I kept turning in chapters and he would edit them and send them back and say, this is great stuff. Just yeah. Keep going and i right. just kept going until i think finally he said you know i think we got enough here and i went oh, okay right. fine <laughs> so right. i've got more stories you know but right. uh you know volume three right <laughs> yeah well this is volume one backstage and beyond volume one it's an awesome book and i just want to read you who's in this book just so you can get it. And Jim, if anything pops into your head while I read these names, give me 10 seconds on anybody who pops into your head. Right. Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, a wild man, a very a man of many contradictions, uh, a man who I drank whiskey with and a man who offered uh, the opportunity for me to write his autobi co-write his autobiography with him when we were drunk one night at the bottom line and then sobered <laughs> up and said, no. 
<laughs> Both of us, I think. I know I certainly do. Yeah, David Bowie. Um, tremendous interview and uh, loquacious, warm, uh, and very willing to go wherever I wanted to go with questions and answers. I mean, he was uh, and very happy to take negative criticism about himself and very eager to discuss his uh, odd work habits of it is the, the fact that he was somewhat of a chameleon in his uh, musical approach to style. Right. Lou Reed. Um, I got on real well with Lou. Not every writer did. Most, in fact, didn't. And I really can't tell you exactly why. I interviewed him probably a half dozen times over the years. And again, it's getting on that same wavelength thing, I guess. I knew the music. He knew that I knew the music. And I, my sense of humor is a bit acerbic. His certainly is. And, uh, you know, I got his jokes. I think, you know, as, as a comic, I think you people yeah. <laughs> you bond on that level. <laughs> do they get your jokes? If they do and you get theirs, there's a connection there. And I think, right. uh, you know, Lou and I had that. And uh, I guess the other thing I, I wanted to say, uh, Lou, I believe, was bipolar. And, and I asked him about how he got out of that when he could. And he said, he, this is great advice. He said, I try to look at it as a clock. And he says, I know the hand is going to be down at six. I'm going to be really low. But I also know it's going to eventually come back up to 12 again. Very simple. Nice. But something, you know, that worked. Right, right. Peter Gabriel. Um, I was fortunate enough to talk with him at the very beginning of his solo career, which was a great time because he was reinventing himself. He was stripping down the ornate music he'd done with Genesis and kind of putting them into three and four minute songs and making them less complex and less convoluted. And, and he wasn't doing so much with the costuming. So he, he was very much inspired by the punk rock of the day and the DIY culture. And uh, it, it, was, it was great to talk to somebody who was so enthusiastic about that about the change that was going on in their career and taking a leap from the stardom superstardom of genesis you know back down again and then building it back up we're trying to right what you did and and that's how the whole book is it's all these insights and just conversations that some of it was a lot of what you wrote about in the book was off the record at the time you were just conversations that weren't necessarily uh, always they didn't appear in articles so you get a lot of this insight about what what makes people tick i love what talking about neil young and king harvest and uh, excuse me crazy horse and his band and crosby stills nash and just all of this stuff warren zoo tell me about leonard cohen what was that like talking to leonard oh he was great i i um as you might imagine, Lenny's a, a pretty smart guy. And uh, one of the exchanges that I liked most was he had written a song called The Future that was pretty dark and grim and harsh. And I, I uh, asked him, I said, you know, do, do you have any regrets about a, making a song, you know, that like that? I mean, it's so extreme. And he just tells, he says, I wish I could have made it darker. <laughs> <laughs> or that was his regret. It should have been darker than it was. So, right. Um, he, he was terrific. I mean, I, I miss him very much. And uh, what I love about Leonard Cohen's career in a way was that he had his, his, his heyday, if you will, in the 60s. And then people kind of forgot about him, I think. And then when the post-punk generation came in, people like Dick Cave and PJ Harvey and others, they kind of rediscovered him and brought him to an audience that maybe didn't know about him or didn't know much about him. And that new audience 
realized that, oh, he's one of us. You know, he's an older guy, but he's one of yeah. us. And, you know, and then, of course, Hallelujah hit with Jeff Buckley. And then it was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's just great. It's just great to hear that people can reemerge yeah. uh, with the times. And Neil Young talks about that. He says, you got to change or you're dead or no one's going to pay any attention to you, but that you can persevere. And uh, the same attributes that go into writing songs in the 60s is the same formula and emotions that are driving you to write in the 2000s. You know, and that goes for comedy or acting or writing or, or, or anything. Well, as I'm one sure thing you. I liked about Neil, too, was he was so adamant about what he was doing at the time. And one of the early interviews I did with him was when he was playing country music with the International Harvesters. He played yes. Foxborough um, there with Willie, Willie Nelson and some others. And uh, he was just saying, you know, my, my best Neil is... Uh, you know, I've played so many screaming loud rock and roll guitar solos. I've had it. How many more of those can you do? Country music <laughs> is where I'm at. I'm like an old dog circling the rug, and I think I finally found my spot. <laughs> okay. Let's move ahead, move ahead about three or four years. What's he doing? He's playing kick-ass loud rock and roll with Crazy Horse. <laughs> It's hilarious. Jim, you know what I also was interested in about talking to Tina Turner? She wanted to act, but she said there were no roles, for, very few roles for women and hardly any roles for black women. So one of the thing, most of the folks that you talk here are, are men because that was the those were the rock and rollers at the time. But you talked to quite a few women. And just give me a little insight in, for example, Marion uh, Faithful and uh and uh, Joan Baez and Katie Lane, did they uh, address that, that the challenge it was for women in rock and roll? No, not particularly. And I, I tended not to ask that question of uh, what's it like mm -hmm. to be a woman in rock and roll. Um, mm -hmm. It kind of sounded a little patronizing to ask that. And I, I mean, clearly there were women in rock and roll, but by the time I talked to them, they had carved out their territory and, you know, right. had a fairly substantial level of success. Um, Marianne fought it probably for harder than maybe the others did, fought for it and went through some horrible times. Again, drugs and booze and recovery, part of it, which mm -hmm. was done here and outside of Boston. Um, but, you know, she became, again, a, a slightly older person who fit into that whole punk new wave milieu uh, and was rediscovered by people, people, the punks, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the other, uh, Joan, uh, I talked to her uh, a few years ago and, um, you know, it, it was funny. I, I said, Joan, you may not remember this, but we met once at Newport Folk Festival and you were, uh, she's out, was, was, I was, what was I, Queen Joan? Was I a bitch? I said, yeah, you, you weren't really, you were kind of not so good. She said, okay, that, yeah, that makes sense. And then we, we had this wonderful interview and, uh, you know, she was talking about her, you know, being able to do the Dylan songs that he no longer does because they're great songs and she wants to bring life to them. And whatever their history might be, she's grateful to have had that history and to keep his songs, those songs, uh, in her canon, if you will. So... Great stuff. And, and the Katie Lang uh, story, too, uh, one of the touching things there was about what she said about Roy Orbison. Uh, mm. Roy is the closing chapter in my book. And uh, uh, she and Roy did a duet on crying, which is just so beautiful. And uh, she was talking about 
you know, how people think Roy was, you know, the, the person in his songs was so lonely and alone and sad. And that may have been a part of him. And I think it was, and certainly a part of him when he was writing songs, but he was anything but that outside of that particular uh, place. And um, she wanted to stress his warmth and humor. And I thought that was kind of a nice thing to, to get into the, into as well. And uh, Roy, of course, uh, left us and I had the fortune, mis not misfortune, coincidence of doing the last ever interview with Roy. Mm. And, uh, did his warmth and humor and did that come across in that interview? Very much so. Yeah. Um, he, he had been born again, uh, not my cup of tea, really? means, but I can ride with it. And uh, he was feeling the sense of, once again, this idea that people were rediscovering him. Uh, you know, the traveling Wilburys boosted his uh, visibility, I guess, uh, the praise from all these other rock people. And he was just on the verge of releasing his solo album and uh, with Mystery Girl and You Got, you got It. And uh, I talked to him right before that album came out. I had listened to it. I had an advanced tape. It was a great record. And I said, you're playing Boston a couple of dates at the channel. Are you going to do any of these songs? And he said, oh, no, Jim, I, I can't do that yet because that would be unfair to my audience. They don't know those songs yet. They want to hear the songs that they know. I said, mm. oh, yeah, okay, I understand that. It's too bad. I'd like to hear one or two, but I get it. And I said, but next time around? He said, oh, yeah, next time around. Well, there was, of course, no next time around. And, um, you know, it was uh, a, a real shock to me, to everybody. Uh, that he died so young, and uh, I miss him. I mean, I had uh, seen him several times and had the good fortune to, you know, exchange hugs <laughs> with him in a yeah. and actually in a period when men didn't do that quite so much. But it was very right. Easy to do. <laughs> well, Jim, when I see you, I'm going to give you a big hug, Aww. and I want to thank you for doing this, <laughs> and thank you for all the support, not only of the music scene but of course the comedy scene as well. Sure. You've just been just such a you and Steve Morse and uh, Dean Johnson, rest in peace, yeah. Dean. But you, you folks really made it easier, so much easier for, I'll just speak for the comedy scene for us and obviously for the music scene as well. And it's a real tribute to the Boston music and music in general. Folks, get this book. This is volume one. Go to the Paradise on October 30th. Uh, you can go to the Baron on November 7th. You can go to the... Uh, the Brookline Library, I think that is the, what is that one, Jim? Uh, 16th. The 16th, and uh, there's also the City Winery, and what is that That's date? That's the 13th. The 13th. You got it memorized, I'm glad. <laughs> but Jim, great to see you. Thanks so much. The book is wonderful. And just leave people, tell us about some of the surprises or what we might find in volume two, because this is only the first volume. And it's easy reading. That's what I love about it. The letters are big. The book is big. The type is big. And it's easy to read. And it's very conversational. What will we see in volume two? Well, the same tone, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it keys on uh, The Clash, The Sex Pistols, Billy, wow. Bra Billy Bragg, Ramones, um, The Damned, The Buzzcocks, uh, Patti Smith. Wow. Wow. Uh, it's, you know, the punk, post-punk, new wave era, primarily. The outlier is Puff Daddy. And what's he doing in there? I just spent a day with Puff Daddy riding around Boston as he was promoting his record, going to various radio stations. And it's just, 
it, it's a good story. I mean, it's yeah. a little bit, as I said, it's kind of an outlier in the book, but it's a good story about riding around with this, uh, shall we say, extremely well-to-do man and his entourage and being sort of a looking in at that entourage uh, and the way they interact with him and the way he uh, is a master of self-promotion, shall we say. That was fun too. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a fun ride. And, um, and I think, you know, I like both books. I think they, they and I think hopefully there's an, an overlap between the two. Uh, some of the people in the first book, like Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, Roxy Music, certainly influence people that show up in the second book. Well, great, Jim. Thank you so much. Congratulations on both books. And I'll see you probably in the 30th at the Paradise. Thank you, buddy. Looking forward to it, Jimmy. All righty. Thank you.